Yeah, good morning. Thank you. Hey, uh, welcome. We're so glad you came out to worship with us on this Easter Sunday, or as we like to call it, Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that we celebrate that Jesus is risen. And uh, that really is the essential core thing of everything that we surround. It, it's everything we do surrounds that, that one point in history, that one fact. We believe it, it's, it's definitely the most important thing of our faith. We believe it to be the most important event in history, and we're glad that you came out to celebrate with us this morning. Um, my name is Pastor Shane. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, um, I, and in case you're wondering, no, I did not get lost. I, I am at the right church. Uh, if you're new here, I don't normally wear a suit, but I have it, and I feel like it's a waste because it just sits in my closet. So every now and then, pull it out, plus... It's hard to find a day to wear a yellow shirt. So, um, so anyway, uh, we're glad that you're here and uh, part celebrating Easter with us. Um, if you're new with us, I want to encourage you. You'll notice, everyone will notice we've got new cards in the back of the chairs. If you're new with us, I want to encourage you to take a second, fill out the connection card, and keep that with you. Um, and even if you're somewhat new with us, you don't have to be new today, but if you're, you know, just kind of been with us over the next few months, we want to encourage you or last few months, I mean, we want to encourage you to visit our welcome booth. We've got a free gift we want to give you, and just thank you for coming and being a part and joining us. Um, and uh, th- just bring it back there. And then also, you'll notice prayer cards in there. If you have a prayer request, no matter how big or small, please share your prayer request with us. We believe in pr- the power of prayer. We believe Jesus answers prayer, and we want to be able to pray for you. So this morning, we are starting a new series entitled, God, I Have a Question. And in this, we're answering different questions. And you might be here for the first time, and maybe this would be a great series for you, because we're going to be dealing with difficult questions that sometimes keep people from faith, keep people from, from giving their life to Christ. Uh, we're going to be talking about, you know, if there's a God, how is there so much suffering in the world? We're going to be talking about the validity of the Bible. We're going to be talking about um, don't all war religions kind of lead to God? Aren't they all the same? Kind of answering these kinds of questions. And this morning, we're going to start with what I believe to be the most important question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Now, a lot of people would say, well, it's not really that important that you believe that. I would wholeheartedly, 100% disagree. Um, Without the resurrection, the whole thing of Christianity is is wrong. You see, every other idea about God says that if you live this life, if you obey these rules, if you follow these standards, if you belong to this organization or church, then you can be in good standing with God. No one really knows exactly where that level is. That's one of the hard parts about all that. But Christianity and, and Jesus, Jesus changed the message. Jesus said, he says, no, it's not about that. You see, Jesus came to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He says, you'll never earn your right because you're, you're, we, we're, we sin and we can never be in God's perfection, his holiness is kind of our sin. So Jesus paid the price for those sins and then he conquered death through his resurrection. And Christianity is all about identifying with Jesus in his resurrection and responding to his great gift of love for us with love. That's all it is. It's responding to Jesus' love with love. <clears throat> now, as we're going to get into answering this question, I want to I share with you, first of all, that I come from this from a skeptic's point of view. I, I was not, I'm not one of the, that was just born and raised on this. Um, I actually came to faith as a young adult 
as I was studying to be an anthropologist, and that was my major. I wanted to study anthropology, which is a study of mankind throughout history, ancient history and culture nowadays. And in my studies, I found that my evolutionist beliefs, the more I dug into them, I found that they were as much based on faith as any other kind of faith. That this stuff that I was constantly being told there was evidence for, when I would, when, when I would really look at it, I was like, well, wait, no, there is no evidence for that. There's, ev- there's evidence to support it, but there's no, no evidence to prove it. And, and the, to, to make the jump of jumping to ev- evolution, we have to base our life on a huge amount of faith. And that, I started to question that, and through that became a creationist. And, and it's a long story. I don't have time for the whole thing, but... <clears throat> But what I found was it all takes some amount of faith. Because the reality is we can't prove anything from history without, we can't prove anything in history by using the scientific method. Scientific method is the only way to kind of prove things beyond a shadow of a doubt. You can't do that with history. You have to use historical evidence. And there is as much historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as any ancient event in history. And so today I want to look at it and I want to challenge you. We as believers, we are never called to blind faith. A lot of people say, oh, well, you just have to believe, have blind faith. I hate that term. Don't ever have blind faith. If someone tells you to believe something blindly, run. Okay? We are called to have faith based on a certain amount of evidence. And we look at the evidences, we examine it, and then we choose where to believe. So I'm going to attempt to kind of show you this this morning. Now, a lot of very scholarly individuals have become Christians, give, have gave their life to Christ by examining the evidence. They did examine scholarly evidence, and through that evidence, gave their life to Christ. For instance, Lee Strobel is a guy, he's an investigative journalist. He sought to prove the resurrection wrong. In his research, became a believer and ended up writing a book called The Case for Christ. Um, there's a guy named Josh McDowell, who was a law student, was going was gonna to do his dissertation on proving the Bible to be wrong. In his research, became a follower of Christ. Simon Greenleaf is a, one of the foremost law professors. Um, he's known as, the, as a prominent authority on common laws of evidence, sought to prove the resurrection wrong, became a follower of Christ. C.S. Lewis was a literary professor through con- continual years of debate with uh, J.R. Tolkien and some other Christians became a follower of Christ. In fact, we have so much evidence that Sir Lionel Luck, who, <coughs> I know that's a really common name to most of you, um, he, he, uh, it, you'll find him in the Guinness Book of World Record as the most successful court attorney with 245 su- consecutive su- successful cases with trials all over the world. He says this about the resurrection. He says, I've spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer in many parts of the world, and I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof that leaves absolutely no doubt. So here's experts in these fields that have given their lives to Christ because of the evidence that they sought to prove wrong. Now, having said that, like I said, one, we can't prove anything beyond a shadow of a doubt. Nothing from history. I can't even prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that President Lincoln was a president. 
I can point to document after document. I can, I can you know, talk, talk about all the things that are written about him. I can, I can do all that. But the reality is we have to say, well, I either choose to believe those things or I don't. Go further back in history. You know, we have less and less documentation. I talk about Alexander the Great. You know, we have less, far little, much less documentation on Alexander the Great. Uh, so, I, I, you know, and the question would be whether or not you choose to put your faith in the documentation that shows that Alexander the Great was who he says he was. So, so, we, so we have to use the historical method, so that's one. Two, we have all these scholars that have agreed upon it. However, I'm not a scholar. No, don't pretend to be. My guess is that most of us in this room wouldn't raise your hand and say, yes, I'm a scholar. Now, some of you, you might, but, but most of us probably would not. So I tried to think of, well, what's a way I could relate this concept in a term that a lot of people might understand. And with my twisted mind, I came up with poker. Now, my guess is that, m- that, that most of you, have, probably none of you, have ever come to church on a Sunday morning and seen a poker table set up, especially maybe not on Easter Sunday. And, and I understand that. And my reasoning behind that is I believe this is the most important message you may ever hear. And I want you to hear it. Hear it. And when I'm done with this, you might be writing a note saying you should fire your pastor or you might love it. I don't know. But my point is this. I want you to remember it. And if I thought you would remember it, if I stood on my, if I could stand on my head and make you remember this better, I'd do that. So my point is you might not like the way I'm doing this, but I bet you talk about it. And I want you to talk about it because I think it's worth talking about. So having said that, let's pray and jump in. Father God, we, I, I thank you so much for the cross and the resurrection. Of all the gifts, of all the blessings, of all the things in my life, the, the most important, the one that it all hinges on is this point in time that you gave everything for us and you conquered death for us. And all you ask us to do is respond to that in love. To live for you in love as a result of what you've done. So God, I pray that you just help us to have open ears, open minds, open eyes, and and to really think critically so that we can see that you ask us for faith, but you don't ask us for blind faith. You ask us to put faith and evidence that is observed. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So, in poker, if you've ever played, now some of you, you're going to learn two things today. You're going to learn about the resurrection, and you're going to learn about poker. So, you know, hey, gives you something to do later this afternoon after you're done with the ham. So, <clears throat> but, in poker, you play the hand you're dealt. You can't decide that you want a better hand. You play the hand that you're dealt. And I'm, so what I want all of you to look at today is where I'm going to present these different theories as different hands. And what I want you to decide is which hand are you willing to play on when, you're, when what you're betting is your life. When you're betting your life, which of these hands are you willing to bet your life on? So let's uh, lay our cards out on the table, as they say. Now we're not even going to talk about whether or not Jesus was an actual historical figure or the crucifixion happened. All history points that every major religion uh, supports that Jesus was a major, a, a, 
important part of history. Um, we have other evidence and documentation that talks about Jesus, um, about his crucifixion. That, that is, is not really an arguable point. People that want to say, oh, well, Jesus was just a myth, that they, they have no evidence. They're, they're just completely backing out of anything that we already have shown. But the point is the resurrection. That's where people start to, start to really question. So let's, let's look at that. Now, how do we, how do we look at that? Well, the, the most evidence we have is the Bible. Almost all of our evidence is from the Bible. Now, so a lot of people would say, well, yeah, but the Bible isn't, isn't a credible source. I, I don't believe that the Bible is a credible source. Well, if you choose not to believe that the Bible is a credible source, you're choosing to believe that with a lot of faith. Because there's a lot of evidence that shows how reputable the Bible is. In fact, I would say that the Bible is the most reputable historic text that we have. How do I back that up? Well, let me just give you some. <clears throat> My first journey into figuring this out was I was taking a Western civilization course in college, and the professor, in talking about Western civilization, he talked about Homer's Iliad. Some of you have heard of Homer's Iliad. And he said, Homer's Iliad is where we get most of our documentation about Greek history and culture. And he said, Homer's Iliad is a great, reputable source. It's the second most reputable source of ancient history that we have, second only to the Bible. Now, he continued on in his lecture, and that, that was it. But afterwards, I, that intrigued me because of the place I was at in my life, and I wanted to find out, well, what, how, what did he mean by that? I had never heard that. I was, all my professors had always told me that, that the Bible was not something to be put any stock in. So I went up and I asked him, and he said, Shane, I would challenge you to look into it. He said, because throughout history, people have tried to prove the Bible wrong from every angle. More than any other document in the world, people have tried to prove the Bible wrong. From a cultural perspective, historical perspective, political perspective, geographical perspective, historical perspective, and archaeological perspective. They've all tried to prove it wrong. And what they find is when they try to say, oh, well, these cultural things that the Bible's talking about are wrong, they find through other writings and through other documentation, no, those cultural things are correct. When they say, well, the, the politics and the things, no, they find through other documentation, the politics are correct. The geography, these different cities that are mentioned, they do digs and they find out, nope, these cities actually exist. They, they, he says all the way across the board, they find, they actually end up proving the Bible more than disproving it. So I did begin to study that and look into it. And, what, and through my studies, I've, uh, let me just share a few things I've found. One, the Bible is the most recognized source for archaeology in history. In fact, the two most prominent archaeologists of the 20th century, both, the, their names were William Albright and Nelson Gluck, look it up, they, they, who neither of were followers of Christ, they both hailed the Bible as the single most accurate source of we have for historical, historical document, saying that it has a greater reliability than any other document. Yet, what do we hear all the time, at least what I heard when I was in these discussions? Well, people just changed the Bible. The problem with the Bible is they just changed it over time to say what they wanted it to say so they, they could make us do what we want, they wanted us to do. Political powers change, blah, 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 all that. Well, now that would be something that you could say if you said, well, all we have is the original text, and then we have, or we, you know, we don't even have exactly the original text, and then we don't, we don't have any other copies for like another 500 or 1,000 years, and there's some differences in those copies. We've been able to prove that. You know, then I could say, okay, I see that. I, that makes sense. But the problem is, 
that's not true. The evidence shows that claim to be 100% false. In fact, of the 20,000 lines of the text of the Bible, of the 20,000 lines, only 40, 40, only 40 of those lines have any discrepancy whatsoever when they, when they compare all the different copies. So only 40 lines have any discrepancy, and none of those lines have anything to do with theological, doctrinal, or historical aspects. They're, they're all minuscule, little, small changes. As a result, it is an ancient, it's, a, it's an ancient text that points to truth more than any other document in history. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me, let me just give you an example. Well, when I was taking my philosophy course in college, we studied Plato. We spent weeks studying Plato, reading the works of Plato. Now, what I come to find out is my professor should have said this before I started reading the works of Plato. He should have said, hey, we're going to read the works of Plato, but what you need to understand is we have no idea if what we're reading is actually anything Plato ever said. He should have said, you know what, there's actually no sources to show that this is Plato. In fact, there's probably a really good chance it was changed dramatically from Plato's original intentions. Why should he have said that? Well, because what we find is the only copies we have of what Plato says, and yet he's one of the most quoted people in history, are 1,200 years after the fact. So, So what I'm saying is Plato was alive. He wrote and said things, but we don't have any of it. The closest in history that we have to Plato's actual life is 1,200 years after the man was walking this earth. Yet nobody, when you see quotes of Plato, nobody goes, hey, I doubt that was Plato. Prove to me that was Plato. Prove to me that's what Plato actually was. We don't do that. Why? Because really nobody cares. Right? But the truth is, it's one of the most, Plato is one of the most documented ancient sources we have. And yet it's 1,200 years after the time. Go on, Julius Caesar's writings of history are, are referred to as some of the most revered ancient writings. We only have 10 copies, 10 copies of Julius Caesar's writings where we, where we get all of our history on the Gaelic wars. Only, only 10 copies. And yet, even those copies, there's a thousand year difference between when, when he actually wrote it and any of the copies we have. No one questions it. Let's look at the second most reputable source, Homer's Iliad. Okay, let's, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but let's jump to Homer's Iliad, second most reputable source. We have 643 copies of Homer. That's, that's quite a bit more, right? But there's a 500-year gap between when it was written and any actual copies that we have. We can't, with no original text, the closest we have is 500 years. And yet, there's enough commonality in those 643 different copies that we say, okay, this is accurate. You know, because if you take copies from here and here and throughout different ages of history and you put them all together and you say, okay, they all line up, that's, then you're going to say, well, then that, there's a lot of evidence to support the accuracy of Homer's Iliad. <clears throat> so if Homer is second to the Bible, how many copies do we think we have of the Bible? Maybe 800 or 1,000? Maybe 2,000? How about 24,000? We have 24,000 copies of the Bible all throughout history from different, found in different areas. And when we line all 24,000 of those copies up, there's only 40 lines that have any discrepancy whatsoever. So when someone says, well, it was changed at the year 400 under this Caesar, blah, blah, well, okay, let's look at that because we can. 
They, and, and what we find is out of the 20,000, there are 40 minuscule small changes that have nothing to do with what we actually believe or what we teach. That's a pretty accurate document. No wonder archaeologists, historians all say, yes, it is the most reputable source that we have. Now, having said that, I don't know about you, but to me, that in itself may, gives me a strong hand. If I'm going to compare any historical ideas, if I have the foremost known accurate text in history backing up my claim, that gives me already, off the shoot, a good hand. That's worth betting on. But let's also just take some time to look at the other hands before we get into it. Now, there's some just lame hands or theories, if you will, that they fold. We're not even getting into them. You know, that the resurrected Jesus was actually his twin that was in hiding for 33 years and came out. Or he was an alien. I've read that one. Or, or that the, the 500 plus people that saw him all had the exact same hallucination. If you have any kind of hallucinatory background, you know that not everyone's having the same hallucination. Um, so so it, it, none of those had, have in hold any water. No one with any reputation even will put that up um, in, in their sources. <clears throat> but let's look at some that have made a little name for themselves. The first, hang on. The first is known as the, the tomb was never empty theory, or the tomb was found, as it's been more recently stated. This was made known by the very famous um, intense scholar, histor- historical scholar, James Cameron. Now, some of you know that's a joke because James Cameron made, wrote Avatar, okay? Um, J- J- James Cameron has made this, this huge claim. Now, if you know anything about James Cameron, his ego, I believe, is a little bit bigger than his scholarly input. But, but he, he made this huge claim two years ago, and it was all over the History Channel. Time Magazine wrote an article on it that the tomb of Jesus has been found. And he said, I have new evidence proving that Jesus never resurrected from the dead. New evidence that the tomb was found. Couple problems. And so here, let me give what he says, first of all. First of all, what he says is they found the tomb in the middle of Jerusalem that Jesus' body was in. How do they know it's Jesus' body? Well, because when it was dug up out of the different, the something teen amount of bodies, so like 13 or 14 bodies they found in the tomb, one of the bodies had an inscription that said Jesus. Another body had the inscription that said Mary. Now, he, in his mind, that's evidence that that's Jesus of the Bible. Now, he also, if you watch this, this History Channel special on it, he, they complete, by the way, with eerie music and deep narrative voice to let you know it's true. Um, they they, they, they uh, say on there that they found DNA evidence to prove it. Okay, So now let's just take those two claims. Right? First of all, the name Jesus and Mary. The name Jesus and Mary in the century, first, first century, were as common as the name Mike and Lori are today. Now, we have a couple named Mike and Lori in this church. Now, if I found two tombs, two graves next to each other in a, in a city, would I say, that proves that's Mike and Lori Hampton? Would I, I, I wouldn't prove that. I, you, that doesn't prove anything. They're very common names. They're still, Jesus is still a common name in pretty much a, a lot of cultures outside of our culture. We just, it's just not in ours. So 
With, which, by the way, said Jesus. No last name, no inscription, no anything. Now, do you think a body that people revered that much, you think that's all they would have put? Just, hey, first name, you know, nothing else. Now, that, so that's his first evidence that doesn't make sense. The second thing is he says this is new, new evidence found. The problem is it's not new at all. This tomb was actually undercovered, uncovered over 30 years ago by very reputable archaeologists. And after they uncovered it, did all their research, they covered it back up like they do with most tombs. Why? Because there's no evidence to support this claim. These reputable archaeologists, you know, they're paid so well. Do you think that they might have said, hey, let's get some 15 minutes of fame or let's put this out there if, if, we, could, if we could prove this is Jesus' body? Certainly they would have, but they didn't. They just covered it back. They're not believers, by the way. They just covered it back up because there's no evidence to support it. Third, I love this one. He says that on the, the special, it says there was DNA evidence that proved it. Problem with that, if, you've even, if all your knowledge of DNA evidence is you've watched a few episodes of CSI, you understand that DNA means nothing if you have nothing to compare it to. See, you, if you can prove I did a crime if you find my DNA at the crime scene and then you match it to me. But if you just have DNA and you have no one to match it to, you've proven nothing. So what he has is DNA, not DNA evidence. Two completely different things. So that's the big we uncovered Jesus' tomb theory. Um, the other thing that makes me realize it has no validity is it was huge news for two weeks and then you never heard about it again. Because, because if, if, if it was that big of a news, I guarantee you, you'd still be hearing about it. But we know that James Cameron's ego is sensitive, so we're going to give him a pair. We're going to give him a pair, okay? He's got a hand that he's willing to bet that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's where, he, that's where he's going to be betting on. You want to bet with James? Let's move on. Second theory is the swoon theory. Now, this one's my favorite because it's really fun, okay? The swoon theory basically says that... <coughs> That Jesus never actually died on the cross, that he only swooned or, or passed out. Now, what they basically say is that, remember the part where it says that, the, that he was given vinegar on a, the, the soldier lifted up a sponge full of wine and vinegar and he drank that? But the people that perpetuate this theory, most of them say, well, that was mixed with a drug that incapacitated Jesus and paralyzed him. That, and then when he was taken down from the cross, he was he was kind of nursed back to health and, and presented as the risen Jesus. Okay. Now, here's the thing. There's actually a little bit of evidence to support that because in that area, there is what's known as the mandrake plant. And it's known that when you ingest, part of the, when you ingest the mandrake plant, it has a, an effect on your body where it interferes with the nerve transmission and can render someone completely paralyzed for a period of time. Okay, so that's what that drug does, and it is in that area, and it's a rare plant. So theoretically, that could work. Theoretically, if you, you know, if we, if we want to, you know, really kind of buy into that, you could say, okay, there's, there's some evidence there. Here's the problem, is it doesn't take into account the process Jesus went through to death and the evidence we have of his death. We know he was rested, kept overnight, but throughout that he was beaten, not just with fists and a club and a crown of thorns like it's documented, but he was given a Roman scourging. Roman scourging was 39 lashes with what's not a normal whip, with what's called a cat of nine tails. 
Now, a cat of nine tails was a whip with nine fingers on it. And when it would whip against the flesh, it had stone, pottery, thorns, all these different things in the different ends of the fingers. It would grab onto the flesh and it would rip the flesh. With 30, 49 or 40 lashes was considered the death penalty. That if they whipped someone 40 times and just left them exposed there, strapped to the pole, within 24 hours, they would just die. Okay, that was considered the death penalty. 39 lashes was something many prisoners were given. Jesus was given the 39 lashes. It also doesn't take into account that the people giving it, the people torturing him and executing him, were trained executioners. You know, the, it was the Roman soldiers. It wasn't like a couple of gangbangers going out and shooting them sideways with a gun in a back alley. You know, it, it, was, it was people that knew what they were doing, okay? And, and they not only knew what they were doing, but you know what the, the penalty for a Roman soldier is if they don't follow through with their, their mission? It's death. So they probably go through great pains to make sure they, they don't know what they're doing. So he was given a scourging, then he, would carry, he had to carry his, the patubulum, it's called, the crossbar of the cross, up to the hill. And then he was nailed, well, you might have heard through the hands. It doesn't, nothing supports that it could have probably been through the hands. It would have ripped out. But through the wrist, because when you nail through the wrist, the bones on either side can hold the weight of the body. So, so it was nailed probably through the wrist, and then taken and lifted up onto the pole, and sat there. Historians document that when this happens to the body nine times out of ten, that dislocates the shoulders. So now they're dislocated and in excruciating pain. Then, after that, nails driven through the feet. Now, I, I just because I want you to hear a little bit, some evidence we have of the scourging, I want to jump back to something I missed. So Jesus is hanging on the cross, but let's jump back to his scourging. A third century historian named Eusebius witnessed a Roman scourging, and he, he, he described the Roman scourging that Jesus went through. He, said, he calls it, says this way with the one he witnessed. He said, The sufferer's veins were laid bare. The very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. So after Jesus' scourging, that's probably what he looked like. And now he's nailed on the cross. He's hanging there. And now he's left on the cross for for over three hours. And in those three hours, he has to breathe. And the way someone died on the cross was through asphyxiation. They suffocate. Because the, the weight of their body pulls down and puts so much pressure on the lungs that they can't breathe. So they have to lift themselves up, suck in as much air as they can, and exhale as they go down. And Jesus went through that process for three hours. Then, remember, it says that before, before they took him down, a Roman soldier pierced his side. And it's interesting because for up until probably about 75 years ago, they used to debate what happened then because John describes it, says that, that when he was pierced, blood and water flowed from his side. And people used to debate, well, how, why would blood and water come out? What's the point of that? Is there some spiritual significance? No, it's a medical significance because now we know that when someone asphyxiates, their lungs collapse and fill with fluid and when pierced, they would release that fluid with the blood. So it would be blood and water. We have so much evidence that Jesus actually died on the cross 
that the Journal of American Medical Association, in no way a Christian publication, says this. They, They studied the crucifixion and they said this. They said, clearly the weight of the medical and historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound in his side was inflicted. Interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. A lot of evidence to say he died. Plus, I'm just kind of trying to figure out this Jesus who went through all this, now trying to present himself as the glorious risen Savior. You know, can you imagine? Even they could, he didn't die and he could have been revived. Can you imagine this guy with his muscles and bowels and things exposed, walking around on feet with holes in them, the, you know, the pain, and, 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 trying to go, hey, risen life. Really? I mean, I, I don't know if about you, but I'd be kind of like, no thanks, I'm good. So, but because of the mandrake plant, because there is some possibility there, we're going we're gonna to give this one a three of a kind. Now, that's a pretty good hand. Do we have the, can we put the hand th- slide up? Okay, so three of a kind, right above two pairs. So it's, if I had this hand at the table, I'd, I'd be betting. I'd, I'd be in with that, you know, see how things are going for a little bit, right? Can we just jump back to that at the end of each one, Wendy? Thanks. The third one is a stolen body theory. Now, the stolen body theory um, basically says that the disciples took the body. They just took the body and, and um, then made it up. <clears throat> a couple problems with that. One, if you read the Gospels up to this point, the disciples were not the bravest of guys. Okay? They, they weren't, were not soldiers by any means. Um, they were fishermen, a tax collector, agricultural guys. And now they're going to take on Roman soldiers to steal the body. Okay? And you can say, well, the Roman soldiers were asleep. Remember what the penalty for a Roman soldier is that messes up their, their mission? Death. I don't know about you. That's enough to keep me awake. Okay? Um, I, I, I stay awake at night when my daughter isn't home yet. So knowing I'm going to die the next day, have, that'll probably keep me awake. So secondly, well, maybe they overtook them. Because, you know, have you ever seen pictures, you know, at the tomb, and there's like a guy with a spear, you know, or there's two guys maybe, you know, they're just kind of sitting there. Okay, that's not it. A Roman guard, guard is actually a term. It's not meaning a person, it's a term. Uh, in in Roman, um, Roman military, a guard was a group of men, anywhere between four to 16 men. So there's four at least to 16 soldiers. I believe it may have been 16. Why? Because we have recorded that Pilate, when told to send the guards, said, go and make it as secure as you can. Now, if you told me as secure as I can, I'm going to go with, let's go with 16. Okay? So, so, but we don't know, but I, I, I would speculate that. But like I said, at this point in the journey, these disciples have not shown themselves to be studs, okay? They're, they're just kind of guys, you know? And so unless you're watching a lot of Mission Impossible, it's kind of hard to believe that, that they went in and they overtook these, these Roman soldiers and, and took the body, especially when we consider the punishment for the soldiers. But let's just say they did. Let's just say they did steal the body. Well, let's look at their story. There's some holes in their story. First... The first thing they say, the, the first witnesses to the, to the resurrected Jesus, the first testimony comes from women. Read the Bible. Read any history from that time. In that time of history, women's testimony didn't hold a lot of weight. If you were going to perpetuate a lie, you would start with someone with some sort of authority. 
right? You would, you would try to make it seem like this is an authoritative voice that said this, but it started with women. So that doesn't make sense. Next, what did they gain? Did these guys end up becoming political leaders or have any kind of clout in society? No. In fact, they were imprisoned. They were beaten. Some of them were exiled. Many of them were killed for their faith. No one dies for a lie. Not a lie that they know of anyway. Because I've heard some people say, well, no, no, that's not true. You will die. People die for something they fully believe in. Absolutely. People will die for something they believe in. I will die for something I believe in. I will not die for something I know that I'm lying about. See, I, I, I get other people, but when we point and say these guys died for it, you know, I might let you die for my lie, but I'm not going <laughs> to, right? I mean, that, that's the way things, things work like that. Pe- people don't do it. They give in, right? They, they don't hold their lie to the point of death, a torturous death at that. So, so there's some holes in that theory that, that they would have stolen the body, but... But I could, I could see it making a little sense, so let's show our, we'll, we'll, we'll give this two pair. Two kings and two fours, that's, that's two pair. Now, as you can see, that barely beats a pair, a little bit better than Cameron, Cameron's theory. So they're, they're still betting a little bit, they're in. Now we get to our final theory. The final theory is the myth theory. Now, the myth theory says that this historical document of the Bible, which has been proven over and over and over again to be so accurate, from the point of the end of the Gospels through the rest of the New Testament is all built on a legend or a myth or a lie that they made up. Okay? <clears throat> now, here's the problem. And the, the reason why it's such a strong, the strongest theory is, like I said, there's no way I can prove it. There's no way I can prove 100% that it isn't a legend. You know, we can point to other legends in history and that kind of thing, but there's some differences in this one. There's some, diff- there's some holes. So let me just present to you some things that don't make sense, and you decide. You decide if, no, that's, that's, that's a legend worth putting my bets on. The first is this. What basically, let me just real quick, what they're saying is that they created the legend because they were disillusioned because Jesus, they had thought Jesus was going to set up a political kingdom. So they're saying they were disillusioned by that and they were disheartened. So they, they, they had to make something out of all this time that they had spent. So they started this myth. That's kind of where that comes from. So here's my problems with that. One, if you're going to start a myth, don't start it in the same city just weeks after the event happened. Go somewhere else and start it, right? Go, if, if the news of resurrection had started in Joppa or Bethlehem or any other major cities in, in, uh, in Israel or a different country, I would have said, okay, I, I, that, that holds a little water to me. But it started in the exact same city just 40 days after he leaves them. A few weeks even after the, the actual crucifixion. Don't ever start a myth. That's just stupid. Don't ever start a myth right in the midst of a major thing, right where it happened. Go somewhere else and talk about it. Can you see that that would have made more sense? Secondly, wouldn't they, had they started the myth there, wouldn't they just 
bring him to the evidence and say, hey, no, look, you're wrong. He's, he's right here. I mean, that's short enough time. Five to six weeks is not that long for a, a body to decompose. It would still be able to show that it was the body of Jesus. I saw one argument. The guy said, well, no, my grandmother believed that my grandfather was alive even though he was dead. Would I dig up my grandpa's body just to show my grandma? No. Your grandma's a sweet old lady. That's weird. Okay? But if it's, if it's one if, but if it's a group of people, thousands of people that are starting to believe this and they're causing a problem, the whole reason they killed Jesus was because the Jews didn't want this uprising and now the uprising is greater than it ever was. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they bring the, the truth out? But they never did. Well, so, so there simply isn't enough time lapse for the myth to be created. Now, some people will say, well, wait a second. Some of our dates say that the Gospels may not have been written to anywhere up to 50 years after the death of Jesus. That's enough time for it to be written, for it to support it. That's true. It is. Here's my questions about that. One, 50 years is the latest date. Now, just so you're not confused, people say, oh, no, no, no. They say 80 A.D. was the oldest date. That's when they say that's the oldest date that John the ba- uh, no, John's gospel could have been written. The others are sooner than that. But they say it uh, could have been up to 80 A.D. 80 A.D. is not 80 years after the death of Jesus. Okay? No matter what people want to tell you, A.D. has nothing to do with after Jesus' death. It, I'm not even going to try to remember the Greek term, but anyway, it, it or Latin term that it, that it means. But Jesus was actually born around 1 or 2 A.D. So he died at 30 to 33 A.D., okay? So, so even A.D. is only 50 years. Don't get confused by that. So at the most, 50 years, that's the, only, that's the oldest reputable date we have. And, but more conservative dates would say more like anywhere from 12 to 20 years after his death. But even if we go with that, let's go with that. Let's, take the, let's be cynics. Even if we go with that, it doesn't take into account that by that time, the Christian faith had spread all throughout Rome. Thousands and thousands of people had moved from Jerusalem after, after they were being persecuted for this had, and spread this message all throughout the known world by those 50 years. So sure, maybe, let's just say, okay, it wasn't written till then. But first of all, we have Paul's Gospels, which they date much, much earlier than that. He talks about the resurrection all the time. How would that lie have gotten spread that fast? How would it have gotten spread? In fact, there's so much evidence to it that a myth expert named Julius Miller wrote a book, and in that book he challenged his contemporaries to come up with a single example of a time in history when a great myth arose out of an actual historic figure within 30 years of the death of that person. And to this date, no one has ever come forward. But I can't prove it. We have to decide if we want to believe in the myth theory. And because we could go back and forth on all the stuff I just mentioned in that part all day long, I'm going to give this a full house. Full house. And I, and I can see, because there's a lot of people that bet on this one. A lot of people bet that Jesus was a myth, or that the, the resurrection was a myth. But let me just close by looking at the hand I believe I'm holding. See, the reality is I can't prove it, but I think it's a strong, strong hand. Yeah. As much as for your sake, I would love to be able to stand here and tell you I can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt that the evidence points un- 
unchallenged in every way, I, I can't. I, I have to go off of historical evidence because that's all we have. But I believe my historical evidence is strong. And sometimes, even as Christ followers, it's easy to get distracted by these other things. I know for me this week, I, I, was, I, I, you know, I, had to, I have to dig deep into this stuff when I'm studying for it. And there's times where I read something and go, oh, that challenges me. Oh, I got, and and, I, and I, get, I wrestle with it. But let's look at the hand. We have the proven reliability of the Bible as the most revered book in history. Not just of its teachings, but of its accuracy. We have evidence that shows how it was preserved painstakingly, making it the most preserved, accurate document by hundreds of times more than any, actually thousands of times, more than any other document in the history of humanity. We have a lot of holes in the other theories. Some evidence, some evidence, but a lot of holes in the other theories. We have the fact that the news about Jesus started in his hometown right afterwards where people could have proven it wrong. And it grew rapidly and quickly. And the fact that it grew through massive persecution to the point that it became a power that has never been able to be stopped. And finally, the point that everyone I know that chooses to believe this truth, they not only have the benefit, and they can talk about not just the benefit of feeling good about their choice, we have the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that changes our lives forever. For me, that might not be perfect, but that's a pretty good hand. That's a straight flush. That's a straight flush. I'm confident about my hand. In fact, I'm so confident about my hand, I'm not going to mess around with going around the table. I'm all in. My question to you is, which hand are you willing to bet your life on? Which hand do you want to stand with? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love for us, your constant care for us. God, you do call us to faith. You call us to, to believe on faith. Even, even right after the fact of the resurrection, there, there were times that you, we, we constantly see about believing in faith. And yet it's not blind faith, God. There's faith with evidence. Evidence that demands us to, to look at it and think about it and make a decision of what we're going to stand on. And so, God, I pray that we would be a people that, that stand on you. God, if there's anyone in here this morning that's wrestling with, do I, do, I, do I trust this? Do I put my faith in this? Am I gonna stand on this? I pray that you would open their eyes and open their heart. If nothing else, God, that you would encourage them to continue investigating what I believe to be not just the most important thing of faith, the most important question that any person will ever ask themselves, ever wrestle with. Because it all comes down to you. And if there is no God, then it really doesn't matter. None of this matters. But if there is a God, nothing else matters. So God, help us not to just write this off. Help us to really examine it. And most of all, I thank you for your gift, the gift that we celebrate today. And God, may we respond to that gift in amazement 
and in love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.